Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, Sunday, and uh, I'm going to do a part two of a biography I did last week, which Rabbi Cohn put a bee in my bonnet, Rabbi Cohn from Lakewood, when he brought up W.C. Hoffman. Always afraid to take on something like it's very large. But for some reason, it stuck in my head. And I said, you know, heck with it, I'll do another one. And maybe a third. Uh, because I find the Hoffman to be very interesting in a lot of different ways. <clears throat> so uh, today's podcast, Baruch Hashem, found a sponsor. is by uh, Morris Freeman, Dr. Freeman, my uh, student and friend. Uh, and he says it's in honor of, quote, my good friends Jonathan and Gila Zellinger and Muncie. That's who sponsored last week. As <laughs> he says, the dynamic duo of Chesed, who do so much for me personally, writes, and for so many others, whose generosity of time and resources for any who ask knows no bounds. They should be blessed in health and happiness together to continue in all their good deeds for many, many years to come. <laughs> well, I mean, that's true. So thanks to uh, Morris and thanks to uh, the Zellingers. And here we go. <laughs> uh, Hoffman is a very interesting person, you know, deep, and has different sides to him. He was, as I tried to explain last time, a great Talmud Chacham, you know, the type of guy who could give a shir and yeshiva, no question about it. No question about it. Uh, but he also knew, you know, like, uh, he was, we'll see, he was a big scientist in terms of Wissenschaft des Judentums, so academic Jewish scholarship. Uh but he also was a POSIC. Now, he has like three, basically three parts to his life, A, B, and C. The first one I did last time was the first 30 years before he found himself a job. Then he found like a dream job, uh, and, in which he could just devote himself to, you know, teaching and writing. And then when uh, the, the head guy died or, or, or was out of commission, he had to take over and be the head of the seminary. Then he more or less became the POSIC. So he started writing Shalos and Shubas. So that's what I want to talk about today. And the reason is because of the Shalos and Shubas, the response of W.C. Hoffman, which is so very interesting. I'm sure many have heard of him. I don't think many have seen him. It's called Malama Lahal. And, uh, you know, he had him in a booklet and his kids published him later on. The history to it, but we don't have to go into great detail. Uh, I had Ellie Fisher over at my house last night. He was coming to this, speaking in Baltimore. He's writing a lot. And the technical details of the response, but I'm not interested in, in the context of this podcast, nor will most of you be. But I found something really cool, and that's what I want to share with you. I had a good time reading it. Hoffman died in 1921 when he was in his late 70s, so he never did publish the Chubas. He, you know, being a real scholar, scholar, he said, I don't want to publish anything until I fix it up, you know. Well, he never got around to that. So make a long story short, they were published about five, six years later by his kids. First volume one, then a little bit later, volume two, and later volume three. Shine, okay. Uh, I just was looking online. I was just interested. Is anybody writing anything about W.C. Hoffman's Shubas? Because they're very interesting. 
And I found, to my surprise and delight, back in 1928, in the old JQR, there was a guy who wrote a book review of it. I couldn't believe it. And it's a nice book review, too. Very interesting. Very well done. Uh, the, the late uh, Rabbi Dr. Moses Heimson, who was a character himself. This is a guy, he, Heimson was in London. You know, he's a Litvak born, moved to London as a baby. And he was what, I, what we could call today the best of Jews college. I'm talking about the 1800s, you know, in the Adler era. And therefore, he wasn't just a rabbi. He was a dying in the London best inn. I wouldn't say he's the biggest Tom Collier. I mean, he wasn't like Dabromsky or anything like that, obviously. <laughs> Not. Yeah, but for London, it was something. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the Victorian era. Get it? I'm talking about the Edwardian era. Long ago. I'm not talking about London now. I'm talking about London long ago. And by the standards of the United Synagogue, <clears throat> the United Synagogue was a Talmud Chacham. I mean, these are the guys who did the Gittin. You understand what I'm saying? They did the Garris. <clears throat> he wanted to be the chief rabbi of England when Adler died. He was he lost it. They noticed they did not vote for him. So that's what you call a vote of no confidence. They obviously didn't hold it. He's that big of a guy. And he got really angry, and so he quit, and he and he traded posts. So Chief Rabbi Hertz, you know, the guy became Hertz Chumash. He left his shul in New York and became Chief Rabbi of England, and this guy became the Rabbi of Hertz's shul in Manhattan, or Chaim. And there's a from guy, but for whatever reason, they weren't yeshivish at all. You know, it was a Jews college. Get it? I'll say it again. He was the best at, in terms of learning. He was from the best of Jews college. But that wasn't that high of a level. I should, maybe I shouldn't say, but, you know, that's more or less correct. And anyway, the long and the short of it is, he spent 20, 30 years teaching in the JTS. Isn't that interesting? By Salman Shech, but he taught uh, Hawacha. No, it was Shulchan Aruch, which was not a big <laughs> subject in the JTS. That's why they give it to him. You understand? It was not a big subject. In the conservative rabbinate, especially in those years, that is not what you really needed to know. Uh, but he taught there, you know, if you read the the memoirs of students who were in the JTS, I've seen some of them, you know, they, they write about them, whatever. Anyway, in that for those who are my age, you may remember the old thing that Feldheim and the others used to put out, the old Chovas uh, al in English, you know, from long ago. He translated back, you know, like 100 years ago, the Chovas al uh, in that old-fashioned, stupid English, you know, that is very boring to us today. But okay, so he, was good. he was a good guy. He was a good guy. I shouldn't be fine. And, to, you know, if you're in the Hebrew, if you're in the Jewish Theological Seminary, you got to publish some scholarly articles every once in a while. So he did some book reviews in the JQR. And one of them was on Hoffman's, it's called David Hoffman's Responses. I, I was so surprised to see it. And it actually reads very good. Because it's an, ex, it's an excellent uh, introduction to our hero in terms of the Shalos and Chubas. Very briefly, uh, they used to have the Hildesheimer Seminary. That was a place where they trained all the rabbis of the Yekis, of the term Der Herz. And, uh, like middle of the road. And he was the uh, the lower shear, and Hildesheimer gave the upper shear, until Hildesheimer, you know, uh, became decrepit, you know, old age. And then our hero took the upper shear, the high shear, as we'd say today. This is a guy who taught to high shear every day um, in Gemara and like an Eon shear and in Shulchanar, uh, in the postgame. Okay? And once the old man, who was a giant, Alzheimer, was at a, at a commission, so all the guys with Shilas used to write to him. 
So I remember when I was a kid, they used to say like this. When you graduate YU, you get the smeek on the back. They say they give you the telephone number of Moshe Feinstein. They used to be the joke. Maybe it was true. You know what I mean? There was a guy's a rabbi somewhere. There was no internet or anything like that. A guy's a rabbi somewhere. He comes from Shiloh. You know, unless he's a bucky and things. How's he supposed to? Seriously. I mean, you know, not to make fun of people. What's he supposed to do? Do you really expect every rabbi to know everything all the time? It'd be nice when it happens. And there are rabbinim like that. You know, what's the name of uh, Gedalia Schwartz and so forth? There are. But a lot of people, you know, it's a question. It's a it's, it's a Gittin question, a Gavris question. It's a Gittin you shouldn't even touch. Uh, Kashrus things. And so you had to call. There's nothing wrong with what I'm saying. So you called your, uh, so you called Rachel Feinstein or somebody like that, you know. And there, so in Germany, from the time he took over, when he was in his late 50s, let's say, middle 1890s, something like that, for the next uh, 25 years. So all the guys who graduated and became Rabbonim into different positions in Germany, all over the country. I'm talking about the old Germany of the Kaiser, what they used to call the Deutsches Reich, the German Empire, in which you had, you know, Germany was bigger then than it is today. They lost a good part of Germany after the Second World War, deservedly so, Poland took it over. Uh, but at that time, Germany was quite big. And they had, I'd say, <clears throat> half a million Jews, maybe a little more. And <clears throat> this is famous. Uh, the Orthodox in Germany was 15%. 85 non from, 15 from. I'm using the word from at the widest extreme. In other words, from those, even those who were barely Shomer Shabbos, which had plenty of those, but still, they were Shomer Shabbos. So I'm not making fun of that. To people who were from from, you know, Yekisha from from. That whole gamut. He had students that were uh, rabbis all these communities. And in many shoals in Germany, you had like Orthodox shul, but the people weren't from. I mean, in many places they were. But the people were, don't, don't fool yourself. It was like America at that time. And therefore, a lot of times it calls for bending the rules. When I say bending the rules, I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, you have to be opposing. I'm, Hoffman was a very from guy, very from. But, you know, when you feel real life, so that's what makes the challenge so interesting, because then the real life forces you, you know, to to address situations, you know, in a halakhically, uh, uh, you know, uh, relevant way. Uh, so, <laughs> I think I told you once, Hildesheimer, Jeremy is a funny place. Hildesheimer was once, they asked him, where had it go? Uh, a Kahila said, we're looking for a rabbi, send us a candidate. And Hildesheim wrote to him, he says, you want an Orthodox rabbi? I know your community. There's not a single Shomer Shabbos in the whole community. There's not a single person who gives kosher, I don't think, in the whole community. Why do you want an Orthodox rabbi? And the famous answer was like this. <laughs> he says, look, the passengers can be drunk. The driver has to be sober. <laughs> the coachman must be sober. Which is so yakish. It's funny. <laughs> right? So imagine a guy who's a rabbi in a community like that, in which there were plenty. There were also communities in Germany, Orthodox community, where everybody was from. Shabbat Shabbos. We have a whole gamut. So, here I want to read from this uh, wonderful article by, uh, and it'll speak for itself. Uh, I'm going to have a good time with this. Here's a little introduction. Then he says, the 120. Now, this is a book review of Volume 1 of the Malamud Hall that came out first. And the others came out later. Volume 1 was Arachayim. <clears throat> later he came out with Ebenezer, Yorday, and so forth. Volume 1 was Arachayim. <clears throat> and he says, the 120 response to here, 
contain different subjects and arranged by Shulchan Aruch. Uh, two to seven are, are public worship, known as Davani, and then eight to fourteen is Kriyas Torah, and fifteen to thirteen is Hilchas Beis uh, Knesses, and thirty-three to seventy-two is uh, Shabbos observance. That's very interesting, the Shabbos stuff. Then seventy-three to one sixteen is Pesach, and then one seventy nineteen is is uh, Rosh Hashanah Kippur, and then you know uh, uh, Sukkah stuff and Hanukkah stuff. Okay, now the scholarly stuff we can leave aside but he says like this these responses are clear terse and usually brief varying from two or three lines to a few pages so that's where there are a lot of people who like to read the Mlam of the Hall especially non from the reformer they like to read all because it's they're not long you know you can't give even a reformed professor can't give him a note of Yehuda you know you wouldn't know what to do with it a Hoffman a lot of times they're like five six lines ten lines twenty lines you can do it but once in a while, it's a few pages. But there are three that are exceptions. Okay? Number 30 is a discussion about, you know, night falls for the close of Shabbos. So I guess it means, you know, because Hoffman, you won't be surprised at this, with a bucky in math and a bucky in astronomy, and a, you know, that kind of stuff. He happened to like science. This is great. Number 58, which is really cool, discussing the question about whether young Jewish children may carry books to school on Shabbos, which is a tube that covers nine pages. And this is really wonderful because by American standards today, they don't even understand what's going on. Who in this country, who in this country goes to show, I mean, to school on Shabbos? You know what I'm saying? We fought many battles over this, but you have day schools as well. They didn't have day schools in, in, in Germany. Hirsch did. And there was one in Hamburg. I'm talking about high school now. That's about it. If you grew up in Berlin and many other places, there may have been in places a kind of an elementary school. And many places did not have an elementary school. And so by state law, you had to go to public school. What I mean is there wasn't a, a, a Torah Masora. And there wasn't such a thing as a Jewish school. A lot, a lot of from people in Germany, in the Kaiser's time when things were good, has sent their kids to public school. They can always say like this: "You don't have to send them to public school, you know. You, uh, from a very from from point of view, you know, let them get a private tutor or something like that." I want you to listen to this because it's so interesting. I'm talking about from people, and this was very wide, and I think that to a certain degree it's still true in Europe, in some places today. <clears throat> so here it is: Sheila, Kitanim Shahochon Basic Sefer Atichon Nikra Gymnasium. Kids who are going to, and he says, Ketanim over here. So in those, uh, not yet Bar Mitzvah. And they're going to a, a gymnasium, which is a uh, middle school, I guess we'd call it. It can be a middle school and a high school. To learn their things for Parnosa. This is probably written 1900, 1905, something like that. The Hochim Shom Gambiyama Shabbos. And they carried it, you, you got to take your books to school. There's a whole chapter in the Shulchan Aruch about kids carrying. Most people don't even know about it in Hulcha Shabbos. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Abe Schwartz, told me, he says, he told me, I was the, the Shabbos guy of the Panavisharal because when he used to come to LA, I think he told me, you know, he would give him to carry, he was a little kid, to carry the Talis home. There was no Arab. Okay? So Hoffman is always very straight up, you know, very direct, and no baloney. 
That's the style of writing. He says, First, let's deal with the question whether you're allowed to go to school on Shabbos. And he starts talking over here. In Arachayim, and he knows, by the way, all the Rishonim Achronim. He was a gong. I'm serious. He knows the Achronim. Barachayim and Simon and Zayim, maybe Beis Deos. He brings the two opinions in the Shulchan Aruch. But Das Achmir Lom Sivri Chacham is Shabbos Hey Bistan. There are those who say you can't learn any, read any books, read any books on Shabbos. But Das Amatei Yeshi Shemater, and others say that Shur Sadin Bezukid Osrin, and you think that uh, maybe we should be Machmer on this. But the Achronim, the Lavush, the, the Ramal say it can be Mekob. But near Ali, and Hoffman says, in my opinion, the way things are now in Germany, it's very interesting that here, going to school to learn a pronounces is you can't make a living today without what you and what you and I would call a high school education. High school education. It's not possible for a businessman to make a parnosa unless he learns languages. So knows you know different languages, and in Europe, every country, every five minutes is another country. So you have to, for, for to do business, import, export, things like that. You have to know different languages, bechachmas and different uh, uh, subjects, sciences, whatever, either in a classical gymnasium or in a re- reality. That's what Hirsch had, you know, uh, in Baltimore we call it City College or Poly. You know, the science, um, you know, uh, oriented school or or a liberal arts oriented school. But you need some kind of a high school education. If the kid stays away on Saturdays from class, then he'll fall behind. He, then he won't know what they're doing the next week, even during the whole, because he missed the Saturday class. Isn't this very interesting? Teacher's not going to go over for the benefit of Jewish students what they missed on Saturday. So the kids will fall behind, and basically they'll fail. I then tell the guy to hire a private tutor. They should teach him what they skipped in Shabbos. Rov Yisrael Bavonis and Marabim. Can't say that. Most Jews are poor. They can't afford a private tutor. So he doesn't mean around the bush. He said, it's just not practical, as we would say today. Not practical. Now, by the way, this is his way of looking at it. I bet you if you ask for Moshe Feinstein, you would probably get a different answer. That's what makes this child's instruments so interesting. But And since... Learning secular stuff is for parnosa necessary, but vadi I heard Rabbi Rudiman say the same thing to somebody once. You might be listening, Henry Rosenberg. They can't afford the the private lessons. The average family out there. So, in my opinion, all the the postkin would agree that it's okay. Because we also say in Shabbos, talk about teaching Umdus to the kid. He should have grown up with a Parnasa. And further, I say, even if your guy is rich enough that he can afford private lessons, 
Here comes a very weird svar. I still think it's better for him to send kid to Shabbos, uh, to public school on Shabbos. Remember, he's writing a from people. Because, let's put it this way, the richy riches will be able to stay home on Saturdays because their parents will be able to get them a tutor or on Sunday will be able to catch them up with what they missed on Saturday. But the poor kids, the average kids, won't be able to do that. And the reason is because, he says, that there are many places where Jews um, are mechal shabbos by writing. Let me tell you what he's alluding to. In the imperial times, I'm talking and in Germany, one second, one of the biggest problems you had, everyone, everybody went to school on Shabbos, and the question is, what do you do for writing? Co-save, right? You understand, to sit in class, um, aside from the Ashkafu class, to sit in class and listen, you're not being Mechal Shabbos, per se. But if you write, you are, just want to turn down Malachas. And I can tell you, Hirsch and others were always writing letters about this. I remember in the uh, Breuer book, Modernity Within Tradition, he talked about this problem. What what people, what from 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 families always tried to do in Germany in those years, cut some kind of deal with the local principal. Get it? And if the principal wasn't a schnook, he would give the Jews some leeway. Uh, you'll be surprised to hear this. Catholic schools were better because they understood the idea of halacha. Because the Catholics have their own halacha. So if somebody said, okay, so I'm sending my kid to the school, but you know, by religion, he's not allowed to write on Saturday. In Bavaria and places like that, it's easier to find you know, a principal or a teacher maybe. But that's what it always was. It was a question of always negotiating uh, you know, with, with whoever's the teacher or the principal or something like that. Uh, it was always a, 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 you know, a, a, a challenge. In the Protestant schools, they usually were big schmoes. And they said, listen, you don't like it? My way to highway. And so Hoffman is addressing this issue. He lived in Berlin, which is Protestant. Uh, but he's writing for Germany. And he says, I think it's better they should send their kids to school on Shabbos, as the poor are supposed to do. And so, here's the problem. Let's say I'm sending my kid to a public school. And when I say a public school, it could be a private school, a non-Jewish school also. He will not be the only Jewish kid there. But he will be the only Jewish kid that's not writing. So that puts a terrible pressure on the kid. Because he says, I'm not allowed to write. Well, the other Jewish kids do. Now go explain when you're in the 6th grade, 7th grade, 8th grade, 9th grade, the teacher, you know, orthodox, the term, reform. It puts a tremendous pressure on the from kid. So the more from kids that go, the bigger that group will be, and the easier it will be for the members of that group not to be pressured by the outside group, and will show the school administration that there is a chalik nichbad, a of from kids that they take it seriously, they don't write in that way to school, give them leeway. Isn't that interesting, uh, Swar? Just from the sociological point of view. Al-Kain, the more kids in that school, in that class, who are from and don't write on Shabbos, then they'll have a bigger chizik, because if I'm not the only kid, let's say in my class is 50 people, making soap. And let's say from the 50 people, 15 are Jewish. Let's just say that. And from the 15 that are Jewish, let's say seven are not, eight are not from and seven are from, or something like that, right? Or nine and six. 
Six is a big chalik. And so if, the, if I'm one of the six, I'm not going to write because the others don't write. But if it's like, you know, 14 to 1, and I'm the only from kid there, or one or two or three, we're going to give in, you see, because, you know, you can't go against the pressure. I think it's so interesting. Yosef, Yosef, Dechzach, Yedem, V'yishezach, Yazeru, and one from kid will be chit mechazik the other. L'reyem mechazak, shalayichte b'shabbos, give him They won't write a Shabbos. So, <laughs> he, he's talking about a reality that's very strange to us in America. Um, a very small number, they won't be able to stand in the sign. So he understands the mindset, the emotional mentality of a sixth grader. I think that's great. Of a seventh grader or something like that. You know what I'm saying? He understands the real world. Because he had both feet in the real world, even though he was, a, he was an ivory tower scholar, but the, on the other hand, he was not. And I'm thinking, you know, of the kids who are going to go to school on Saturday. Everybody goes to school on Saturday, um, and I want those kids to have the chizik not to write. And there's no question that the, those who are shvacher anyway. In other words, if you come from a very, very from family, no mela. There are some people that come from families, he says, that are really stark, and the kid doesn't mind being one out of 15. In other words, and, and more power to you. That's Kavaldik. The other kids in the class, all right, I don't write. That's not what we do in my family. Okay, but that's coming from a very stark family. But those who don't come from a super stark family, from a regular from family, to a penny dame, it'll be hard on them. That's such an interesting swar. It's better that a rich guy, a richy rich, should do something which is which is less than a... No, it's, it's a little bit wrong. When I say it's a little bit wrong, if I'm a rich guy, really, 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 from my own point of view... I should hire a private tutor. So what he means is like this. Suppose I'm a richy rich guy and my kid is the only Jewish kid in school. It could be. Well, you know, a lot of small towns in Germany. It could be. My kid is the only Jewish kid in the in, in, the, in the middle school. Okay. If that's the case, don't send him to school on Shabbos and let him have a private tutor make it up for him. But if my kid is not the only kid in school... If there are others in there, and the others are poor, they can't afford, as I can, it's better for me to be over on a, something which is less than a surazuta. In other words, to do something which is technically okay. which uh, Technically okay. I'm sending my kid on Saturday to school, but not writing. So it's better to do that in if by sending my kid to the school, it'll be mechazik, the other kids from, from families, that they should keep Shabbos better. So in other words, here's a classic example uh, of Kedoshim Tiyu. Mamish. As Hoffman sees it. Kedoshim Tiyu means, don't just think of yourself. You know, think of Yenem. Uh, but it's weird, you know. <laughs> I'm sending my kid to school because I'm thinking of Yenem. Uh, it's, it's just so remarkable. And anyway, go see what the Oilam has always done here in 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 Germany. But they say, Gymnasium Shabbos. 
It's already several generations that from families, Yireim, from families, send their kids to public school on Shabbos. But also, right? Then the kids come out from and uh, make a Kiddush Hashem, Magdishim Shem Shamayim, Yisroshim Tiveris. Right? So, in other words, the other side is you see that there are families. Now, I don't think this would work in America, but there, there are families who send their kids to these uh, public schools, these Christian schools, these Catholic schools, secular schools, whatever they are. They are at all kinds. And if the kid comes out from Medactic uh, Batara Mitzvahs, it's a Kiddush Hashem. Right? So this is Pukhazimaya Madavar, which means go see what the Oilam does. This is extremely interesting because there are reforms that happen in Orthodox life. And you don't even notice necessarily that they're happening. But it's basically just what the Oilam does. Now the conservative turned this into a theology, which is crazy. But there is something to it. In the sense, the the the, the Velt, the from world, does change here and there, even though they say they don't. We all say we don't. But they do in response to certain <clears throat> circumstances. This public school business in the 1800s, early 1900s, was part of there. I was in London a couple of years ago, and people told me there that there's some families, they don't send their kids to uh, day school, Jewish schools, send their kids to very good public schools, and somehow or other the kids come, I mean, come out from This would not work in, in Baltimore, you know. But they tell me it works in London and other places like that. Uh, it's interesting. What I was going to tell you is like this. You know, you and I, this week, are living through a reform that's entering Jewish life. I'll tell you exactly what I mean. Guns and shul on Shabbos. Did you see the thing I saw on Friday? Uh, Avadi Yosef's son, you know, Yitzhak Yosef, he's the Sephardi chief rabbi in Israel. He said everybody should bring guns to shul on Shabbos because of the danger of terrorism. And if I remember correctly, he was talking to the Jews around the world. So he must have information from the Mossad and this kind of stuff that the Hamas and these other momsters are trying to do, you know, do terrorism uh, uh, in shoals around the world, which we know they are intending to do this. Now, a gun is Mozza until it isn't. Meaning, is it Pekuch Nefesh or something like that? I know in Baltimore, and you know in your communities, many of you I'm talking to, there are you know, security committees and there are X number of guys that bring guns and this and that and the other. I'm not going to name names, but I'm, I know the Frumbest Schultz here have special, you know, people that are that are doing this, and they have a safe to keep it in. But in those on Shabbos, when there's a whole oil, they're doing it. Now, who gave this to Heter? It's a response to the terrible crime and the terrorism that's going on now. I'm, I'm seeing this, as I speak, if, if I would tell you 10, 20 years ago or something like that, Somebody, a Rav, I mean, a Paisik, will say it's okay, you know, to carry guns on Shabbos. And he said, what are you, crazy? But it's not true. So that's the world of Hoffman. It's very interesting. Now, by the way, he says over here, I, he says, I'm not saying you go to shul and skip davening. you got to wake up five in the morning and do the whole chakras and everything, and then go to school. Ach bevadi yesh lizar sheyelcha abonim l'hashkama l'malo yibatim Shabbos. So if your kids aren't going to public school, it's of course it's assumed that they're going to have a shkama minion and they'll daven and everything before they go to school. And for Hashanim Kippur, you know, 
Roshanim Kippur definitely they shouldn't go to school. In other words, that the guy understand. You understand? That the guy understand. Which is the same thing in America. Even schools that would give you a t- hard time wouldn't give you a hard time for Yom Kippur. You know what I mean? They give you a hard time for Shavuos, right? And if you're one of these uh, 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 phony Jewish students, you'll say, I can't go to school in Lag Bomber, you know. But uh, not for Rosh Hashanah Kippur, okay? And then he gets into the question over here of actually caring, which in the end is Matar. I'll tell you something. My father, I'm a Ben Zakunim. Uh, I'm from a second marriage after the Holocaust. You know, my parents, lost, each one lost a family. And then, you know, they came to America and eventually got married second time. And that's me, me and my sister. So my father was born in 1900. You hear what I said? 1900. It's a long time ago. 1900. And in Minsk, which was one of the biggest Jewish cities. And there, the Rav was a very famous rabbi, Les Rabinovich. I don't know if you know who he is. He was like up there with Rukhain Brisker. Back in the day, he was one of the big gedolim in Russia, the leading gedolim. His uh, he was the son-in-law of the Minsky gedol. His brother-in-law was the Dvarbro. Big people. But my father grew up in that thing. His daughter went to public school, and uh, like I'm talking about over here, the the the, the, the Rabinovich, Russian public school in Minsk, and she had the shiks that carried the books. <laughs> You see, you know, they were, he was a rope, so he had a big salary and so forth. Uh, they had the, the, the mate do, do the carrying because there was no air, I guess. Uh, look at that. So this is a, a world, we live in a world of basic, how you talking, the, I mean, the whole thing doesn't even, it's not even imaginable. That's why the response to literature is so, so, so fascinating. Right? And after going through this and that and the other, then it gets into the technicalities over here which I'll spare you. And the end, he says that he can do it. Now, what's really cool is like this. He, Hoffman, I told you, married in the Rosenbaum family from Bavaria, uh, the Moshe Levy group. They were very, very from. I don't know if you remember, um, I think last year, I did once Wexler, Haile Wexler, because uh, Sammy Finkel asked me to do that. He's the one who had the strange dreams where he foresaw the... Um, the Shoah. A super from Yeki. Matter of fact, some relative has called me up afterwards from Lakewood or wherever it was. Um, and it was a very from guy. These are like, they're related because they both married the same family, but they're two very different types. Wexler was like to the right of Samson Rafael Hirsch in terms of, uh, I mean, he didn't hold from term Derek Hertz. Uh, but, you know, he was very rare. Yeki should do the was old, old, old school. But his, it wasn't a brother-in-law, but they're related by marriage, was Hoffman. Next week, if I have time, I'll talk, they had a funny relationship. Uh, so he's like to the right of him. Now they respected each other, and they're both Tamina Chachamim, but he's always attacking from the right. So I know families like this. Let's say he's a brother-in-law. He wasn't exactly a brother-in-law. Let's, let's call him a brother-in-law. So Hoffman used to say this and this and this. Every once in a while... The other guy would write to attack him from the right. So here in the Muhammad Lahol, it's really wonderful. He after he gave this whole heter, he says, Michta Macy Didi Harabat Sadik Wexler. That my brother in law wrote a machaw against my psak. This is all such a Yekish thing. You've got to tell the truth, you know. Uh, meaning he took issue 
with his psaka about carrying the books and all the rest of it. And it's very lumdusome back and forth. In other words, it's a two or three page attack, lumdish attack from Wexler, and then Hoffman gives his answer back to him. Okay? It's all part of the thing. That's why this goes on for long and long pages. But, um, as I said before, and he cussed him out, you know, he said, you're going to be Mata Shabbos and all the rest of it. And Hoffman, who's always, you know, David Hachamim, Benachas Nishma, that was, I think, his slogan. It wasn't that tight. And he says, Umash because of Rab Divri Musa, ruined Lomram. In other words, you, Musa, against me was very correct. But I have my, my I hold I'm right, <laughs> right? And I hold there's a reason. And uh, what do you call it? Easy Shane And I see that there are many from places that um, you know, that they allowed the kids to carry. He even talks about the fact that it came up in Germany. Let's say it was a town with one shoal. Um, and they forget, it's going to happen. The shul's not open 24-7. They had a lock. And sometimes, come Shabbos or Shabbos morning, and they forgot to open the shul. And then it's a matter of caring to get the key. And, you know, how do you do that? And they used to use kids and all those sorts of things. What I'm saying is, it's very cool to go through these tubes. But um, now I'm going to get back more to the English. And it'll be easier for you to follow. Uh, where's the guy sing over here? Apart from the intrinsic experience, uh, importance, their interest, again, listen to this. Th this is the book reviewer. Dr. Hoffman is exceedingly rigid, but no serious inconvenience would result. But where real hardship would follow from a rigorous construction of law, he tries to find a way out. That's a wonderful sentence. You know what that means? He's not a Mekelstam in the Veltarine. When it's not necessary, he always says, I guess you follow the dignity of some hardship. But when it's necessary, they'll try to find a header. That is a postic. You understand? It's not some guy just, I guess, you know, try to find a loophole whenever you can. It's not appropriate. Kadoshim to you. A person should try, when possible, when circumstances allow, you try to be machmer. You understand? He's exceedingly rigid where no inconvenience would result. But where real hardship would follow from a rigorous constriction, construction of law, tries to find a way out. And therefore... It's very cool. Now, I'll show you some examples because I think the book review put it very nicely. Here in number two, can one hold a, uh, a, a minion with eight adult males instead of ten? The correspondent writing to him says that in his town, it's reported that the great Rabdavid Oppenheimer back in the 18th century permitted it, a minion of eight. Hoffman replies, this, is tr this report is not true. <laughs> right? In other words, rumors can start... And Balabatim especially can start all kinds of rumors. It's just not true. And anyway, he says, look, if you get eight people a minion, you'll make a little bit of effort, you'll get ten. Right? Um, in number eight, there's a show where there was one coin and no levy. And Hoffman decided the coin should not be called up more to the Kriyasator more than once every four weeks. On all other occasions, you can call Yisrael first. Right? Just say, Bershusa coin. And uh, the twelfth one is very human. This is. Remember, the people he's writing to most of the time are graduates from the seminary, from the Hildesheimer Seminary. So he's, he's, he's Talminim, and a guy's in a stellar, and he's out in some hick place, and 
the Balabatim are driving him crazy, this and the other. So when he's writing to him, Igris and Moshe have the same thing, by the way. Same thing. You know, tell me to write him, you know, help me out over here. And um, listen to this. A, a newly fledged rabbi, fresh in the seminary, puts a question that's troubling him. His Kehillah proposes, number one, to abolish the silence from an S-ray, because they say it's fire him to do it. This <laughs> is so. I could get this in my show, you know. People like, it's cut out the silence from an S-ray, get out earlier. Number two, to deprive the Kohanim of the right to Duchen. Oh, no, to deprive the Kohanim of the right to be always called up first. Probably they're looking to auction off, you know, used to auction the least. Auction off more. You know, if a Kohen doesn't have to pay, because it's going to get it anyway, if the only Kohen. This is a, this is, a, what do you call it, the Balabatisha mentality, you know, the board of directors. And number three, to omit Duchening and Mosef, because they already did it in Shachris which is what the Yekis did. And in regard to the first proposed innovation, Hoffman suggests the rabbi should point out to his flock that the silent reading of Shemayasri only takes a few minutes. <laughs> As to the second proposal, there's no objection to calling up non-Kohanim first, provided you do, like we said before, Bershusa coin, and just call the coin once a month to preserve the Kohuna. And the third proposal, try to impress upon them the importance of Duchening. Right? And especially... A lot of people come late to Musaf and they'll miss the Duchni. <laughs> so this is just using the uh, human psychology. Tell the board of directors, if you cut out the Duchni, a lot of people will miss Birchas uh, HaKohanim. And, you know, people, there's a lot of people out there that want to hear the Birchas HaKohanim. They want to get blessed. Okay? Uh, and in general, the genial and practical development says, uh, don't resign even if his persuasions fail of effect. For as the Maram Shif said, if the Orthodox rabbi will be rigid to the extreme, then laxer colleagues will take control of the congregations. Meaning they'll bring in a left-winger or a conservative rabbi or something like that, or, you know, uh, open Orthodox. So don't quit over that. So the rabbi should stay at his post unless the shul in, in, introduces such things like an organ or a female choir or uh, skipping things of Ikri and Muni, you know, cutting out uh, from the... Uh, you know, from the Shemun about Machai Mason and Mashiach, stuff like that. Innovation is less serious. He should resist with all his might, but if he doesn't succeed, you don't have to quit. That's a very uh, human story. And it goes to show you the kind of congregations out of there. You know, we usually think, Germany, you're talking about St. Israel Hirsch, that was a from community, you know, by definition. A lot of these guys had stellars in, in, in communities where what it was Orthodox, like I said before, but it wasn't a from here, listen to this. Another congregation, number 16, decided to introduce the organ, you know, the play. The religious head of that community states that he would be inclined to permit the innovation provided the instrument be only played on weekdays and at weddings or the king's birthday and similar occasions. Would this permission be correct, the correspondent asks, and that if he leaves, his successor will allow even more radical changes. This tshuva, which covers nine pages, and a lot of historians have done work on this. This is Hoffman's famous thing, The History of the Organ. Um, summarize the entire literature on the subject. I'll tell you again, I've seen, there are many articles that quote this. Uh, the entire literature on the subject gives the various opinions pro and con and refers to the organ in Prague because they used to have, in the 1500s, 1600s, a famous organ in Prague in which they used to play on Friday night up to Lechadodi. The writer also quotes a hymn brought to his attention by a scholar in a prayer book in Amsterdam 
in 5440, what would that be? Tough, Kuf, Mem. So that would be, I guess, 1680? Yeah. So what do you call it? Uh, at that time, you know, meaning there were shoals in Western Europe in 15, 1600s already. They had organs. Not on Shabbos, though. The, del the decision finally arrived is in line with the early decision in the 19th century, which is really you should never have an organ, even at weddings, other musical instruments, because it's a church thing. But then he concludes, but we won't pull your smicha if it's if it's only in weekdays. To us today, it sounds crazy. A hundred years ago and more, there was such a, you know, uh, a, a cultural pull that you have to have an organ. I happen to know in Baltimore, the Frumashul, the Sheriff Israel, the Yekeshashul, when they had their, um, when they dedicated the old shul in 1904, 1905, something like that, downtown, the one uh, off of North Avenue. So that's a Frumashul. You know, they had an organ, meaning it was during the weekday, and they had celebrations, and they had rabbis come and speak, as happened, you know, dedicated the building, and that organ. Uh, now, they would never have it regularly. There was, it must have been left-wingers that are pushing to have it at least when they have the dedication ceremony. Show. That's how strong the push was for then. Right? And anyway, that's how, uh, let me think. Nearly one-third of volume deals with Shabbos. The pressing problem is how to avoid loss that a strict observance Shabbos would attain at the same time. For example, number 33. I think these are interesting. Number 33. An investment bank. This is no even nowadays. An investment banker closes his business on Shabbos and Yonto, but delay until Monday in the execution of orders that arrive on Shabbos is exceedingly risky. The banker proposes to open a branch office ma managed by a guy under the guy's name. The guy will execute the orders that come on Saturday and receive all the commissions and profits so you won't be nana from the Shabbos. The banker will only draw interest on the capital he invests. And this is okay, and Hoffman says it is, on the condition that the clients are notified to forward to the Gentiles' office all orders that would arrive on Saturdays. Okay? And then, the author of this review, this is very interesting, who again was from London, Moses Hyamson, Rabbi Hyamson, and he was many years in the London bestie, back in the time of Queen Victoria and Queen Edward, King Edward. So he says like this, In this connection, I would like to add that Mr. Rothschild of London, that was the famous Rothschild Bank, and they're also not so from you want to know something? It's a funny... Listen to this. I would like to add that Messrs. Rothschild of London have always had an arrangement with a non-Jewish bank to pay out on their behalf acceptances that fall due on the Jewish Sabbath. Moreover, advertisements in the press of date of payment of coupons by the Rothschilds always have the formula payable any day of the week except Saturdays. Look at that. You know, I don't know about today, but he said 100 years ago, the Rothschild, this, uh, this is uh, the right thing to do. There's a Kiddush Hashem, whatever. They, in other words, they make a public statement. Shabbos is not the day. Payable any day of the week, except Saturdays. I think that's very, very interesting. And then um, 34 is the extreme conscientiousness of the Orthodox German Jew. Two brothers inherited business with their father-owned in partnership with a non-observant non Jew. During the father's lifetime, the business had been kept closed on Shabbos and Yantel. The partner now insists on opening on these days, and the brothers want to know whether they should stay in the firm, working weekdays only, and whether they may leave their capital in the firm, because otherwise they can't make a living. And he says it's okay. 
But the point is like this. They were willing to accept the sock. If he would have said, you have to pull out and lose the money, they would do it. That's what he means. Another correspondent had an exceeding conscious, tender conscience, and this is number 52. He secures orders, which a Jewish firm in London executes. Some of these orders he discovers from quarterly statements have been carried on Shabbos, and now his conscience is bothering him. You don't want to have Scar Shabbos. May he keep the commission on them? And the answer is yes, because a shliach is not responsible for a mashalach is not a shliach is not responsible for the violation of Shabbos by his principal, uh, P-R, with principal with an A, and the time when the orders were executed need not concern him. Then he has a Russian Jew, number fifty-three, who was exiled for several years from his country, and now received received permission to rejoin his family. The journey will take a week, and he might have to travel on the railroad on Shabbos. Is this okay? And the correspondent is a scholar and gives reasons, quote authorities, to the affirmative. And Hoffman says it's okay. This whole question about, you know, you're not driving, you're riding in a, in a train on Shabbos, which is a complicated thing. These are things that none of us would ever even think was in the realm of possibility. That's my point, right? Never realm of possibility. That's why when you see the Malamed al it's just very, very interesting. Uh, here's one that's super yakish from the Kaiser's time. You know, the German Jews at that time were very patriotic. I think we know it. It's almost like a, almost like a cliche. They were super patriotic. I mean, there was a, a, a big scandal. Some Jew from uh, Galician or something was in a German shul, and he fell asleep during the shul. You know, it could happen. An older guy, and therefore he didn't stand up when they made the bracha for the Kaiser. They threw him out of shul. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's what it was. So listen to this. He will not permit evasion of military service, even though the Jews will be forced to be Mechal Shabbos, because this is Mechal Hashem. Military service being compulsory, the Jews' violation of Shabbos is no sin. Even a, a volunteer should not delay uh, enlisting. I can tell you right now, that's, that shows you that German Jews are very patriotic and regarded Germany at that time as a fair country. This would never happen in Russia. If you ask the Chavos Chaim or something like that, can you, you know, is it okay to evade serving the Tsar's army? Yes, <laughs> right? Matter of fact, I bet plenty of people who are listening to me right now, if you ask your grandparents or great-grandparents or whatever, how they come to this country or wherever they went to, they ran away from the draft. Because why the heck should somebody sacrifice his life over time for the Tsar of Russia? You understand? Um, and then he has a thing about kidneys during World War One, and other things like that. All I'm saying is, you end up uh, with, I think this is a very wonderful uh, quick review of uh, the type of shilas that were common and the type of hashkafas that were common in German Jewry in the uh, in this last period up to the First World War, let's say, because he died in 1921, so up to and including the First World War. Ten years later came Hitler. Twelve years later. Everything changed. But the time I talk about the Germans were still in Germany. And you can see people are writing to him because like this. First of all, understand one thing. If you want to be Machmer, you don't have Rashaila. You get it? By definition, when you have Shahs and Shubas, most of the time, I mean, there is exception, most of the time, when you get a Shiloh, the person's saying like this, I know it sounds like it's not okay, but but I really, really need a heter over here. Is there one? Now, if there's not, there's not. Like those two guys said, you know, we'll lose the money. If there's not, there's not. But is there, because we're not big scholars like you are, and we're looking to you to pose it. You see? And number two, 
you can see that he, as I said before, will try his best to find Heter if it's there. If it's not there, it's not there. I haven't touched on the most controversial of his things, which came out in later volumes. He had these funny things to say about Gairus and all the rest of it. But it's always within the context of, uh, you know, trying to hold on to the shoals. They shouldn't switch to reform. If you don't do this, then they'll get somebody who will do it. It was a very complicated world they lived in. A real Frum family wouldn't even send them a child because they're going to do the Frum thing. But there's a lot of people that, like you said before, you know, the kid had to go to school or the guy has a job or something like this. I think the examples I gave uh, are, are, are wonderful insight into the type of things you find in the Chubas Malamid Hoel, which makes them always of interest to the historian. And they're not so hard to read if you if you uh, take the trouble to look up the sources. That's all. You know what I mean? When he quotes from the Shulchan and from the Rajma and all the rest of it, if you care to, I mean, they're not that hard. But it, on the other hand, you do have to look it up. And I'll tell you right now, he knows all the Chubas Achronim. I've seen him there the Maram Sheikh. I mean, you know, Maram Sheikh, I mean, that was his Rebbe, Nechsam Sofer. No, to be who all that, you know, he knows all that stuff. So, uh, he was a very impressive person, uh, and he was the guy to go to for the 20 25 years when, when he was active. Anyway, I just wanted to share that aspect, um, and then maybe I'll do the final one, uh, next week. I want to thank once again Morris for uh, sponsoring today, and uh, and I want to echo his nice words about. Johnny and Gil Zellinger and Muncie. They were nice enough to sponsor it this week. And I hope there will be other people. Uh, I have somebody for tomorrow, but I don't have somebody for the par. I need a half for the Parsha and a whole for the Haftar. I have somebody to do a half for the Parsha. So if there's anybody interested, you'll let me know. Meanwhile, have a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.